You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And today I'm joined again by a special guest that we've had on the podcast a couple times to talk about South Korea and inter-Korean relations. Delighted to be joined again by Stephen Denny, a political scientist at the University of Toronto, who is an expert on South Korea and watches the country's domestic politics in particular quite closely. Stephen, how's it going today? Good. Thanks for having me on again. Glad it's to a, talk about important issues. Absolutely. And a lot has happened since we last had you on. Um, I believe the last episode we did with you, we talked about Moon Jae-in, the new South Korean president. Not so new anymore. He's been in office for a while. He's um, kind of dealt with some of the burdens of the Blue House, in particular the challenges that are uh, coming his way from the North, which have grown um, more severe since the last time we spoke on this podcast. North Korea has carried out two intercontinental range ballistic missile tests since we last spoke. It has overflown Japan twice with ballistic missiles, and it has carried out a nuclear test that yielded at least an order of magnitude more explosive power than any of its previous tests. So um, the situation is at a uh, in a very different place. And in the meantime, in the past few weeks, we've seen an unusual war of words, to say the least, between the commander-in-chief of the United States and North Korean Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un. Um, and this has left both U.S. allies in Seoul and Tokyo alike a little uneasy about the prospect of blundering into a war that nobody wants, certainly no one in South Korea right now who happens to be in power. Um, so I guess the place I want to start is... Um, Moon Jae-in's kind of breaking in an adjustment into the challenges of his office. Um, obviously, he's seen more than his fair share of North Korean ballistic missile tests. I think I stopped counting after his uh, sixth or seventh ballistic missile launch, after he had to chair those early morning National Security Council meetings. What's your, um, you know, what's your sense of how we've seen um, Moon and his cabinet kind of change since Inauguration Day when he comes in with this you know, triumphant pitch on inter-Korean rapprochement and um, talk of Sunshine 2.0, 3.0. Um, how how has it, uh, you know, how have you kind of read the uh, the changes that we've seen from this administration? I was fortunate to, that was a good setup, by the way. I was fortunate to be able to be in the country at the time of the transition. Uh, and again, when the, when the administration was settling in, um, got to meet the the Minister of Unification, and I got to talk with a number of officials, academics, um, ordinary citizens about their expectations of the the Moon administration uh, and the objectives that he was seeking to pursue. And you know, I. I want to maybe just slightly disagree with the way it's been framed. And I think your framing is fair. And I think that's how most people have framed it, which is that Moon Jae-in came into his position. His new administration was being set up in, in such a way as to uh, foster rough, you know, uh, rosier relations between North and South Korea. However, I think that there was a recognition of the difficulties that they would have in needing to both uh, appease the electorate uh, and to deal with the geopolitical realities um, that were and still are present. Now, what I mean by this is two things. One, the Saudi political culture 
or it's called the opinions, the values and attitudes of ordinary South Korean citizens with regards to national security interests are quite conservative. And they are notably more conservative now than they were 10 plus years ago when we last had two administrations in South Korea. Specifically with regards to North Korea, people are quite cognizant of the security vulnerability and their opinions reflect as such, meaning that they want someone who's going to be to be slightly glib, tough on national security. The Moon administration has to recognize that. And different from the No Hyun administration, from which Moon Jae-in comes, they're far more calculating. The, the Roe administration was known for being uh, almost volatile because they pursued what they felt was right or what they felt they needed to do rather than what was politically, um, politically correct or politically savvy in the sense that you wouldn't be upsetting you know, too much of the electorate or, or your base. The second thing, the geopolitical situation is, well, as you described it, I think that the administration came in and the sense that I got was that they kind of recognized, or at least when they talked about it, it seemed as if they were between a rock and a hard place. Now, Moon Jae-in did indicate that he wanted to seek a more con you know, conciliatory approach to North Korea, separating himself from the two previous conservative administrations, which certainly took a more hawkish approach to North Korea. However, geopolitical realities, these structural constraints really put a, not a stranglehold, a, a uh, put Moon in a really tough position uh, to establish, negotiate, or otherwise pursue an alternative to the, conserv is the, the previous conservative administration under Park And I think those, these, this constraints, the geopolitical constraints and the need to be sensitive to the electorate has, has put them in the position such that today the only really different thing that they've done is, uh, approved a, a a relief fund um, for some large amount of money which which will be used to fund the world health pro or the the world food program in North Korea to address uh, you know acute needs for for uh, for children and pregnant women and I think that is really the only different thing that has happened quote unquote accomplishment other than that it's been more or less a continuation of the previous administration with Moon you know, doubling down on the security-centered rhetoric, saying that North Korea has made a mistake in doing what it's doing and assuring the populace in both the United States and in South Korea that the alliance is a top priority uh, and in expediting or completing the installation of that, right. which was a touchy, thorny mm -hmm. issue. And when he came in, he put a paw on it for, I think, some issues which are related to ministerial quibbling, but they, they halted the installation of the four additional launchers. Two were installed prior to him coming to power. Right. And he put a halt on the installation of the additional four. Well, those are now installed. And the justification for that is the threat posed by North Korea. So here we are. Right. Um, so... And I don't think a whole lot has changed. Absolutely, I think I think that's a a really good 
you know, layout of the issues. And I want to come back to um, at least a few things you said. Um, so first, I think, you know, there's an interesting um, civil military dynamic in South Korea that we've seen in the past few months. Um, do you want to talk a bit about that? I mean, specifically in the context of the THAAD deployment back in May, obviously, you know, it it was put in uh, U.S. forces. Korea deployed the first launchers just days before the election. It really was difficult to avoid the perception that they were trying to essentially make sure that they managed to get this deployment in before Moon, who'd been vocal um, prior to the elections being um, speeded up and prior to Park Geun-hye's um, impeachment, who had been vocally opposed to the system, who moderated his views a little bit later when he saw that he'd have to actually run for office. Um, how have those, um, what's your read on kind of the civil military uh, balance right now between this administration and the South Korean military? Right, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of insight into this. There was the issue... Um, shortly after the inauguration between the minister, the Ministry of Defense and the Blue House, mm-hmm. uh, it was the, the Ministry of Defense was accused of withholding information on uh, the environmental impact and other relevant factors of THAAD. And they were accused of wanting to expedite the full installation. Uh, when the Blue House found out, they put a pause on things and then later announced that because it had reached a certain threshold or exceeded a threshold, certain threshold, that it would need to go uh, undergo a full environmental review, which could have taken up to, I remember reading, about a year or so. Right. Uh, that that decision has, of course, since been reversed and that has been fully installed. But there was a, uh, there was a bit of tension there between the Blue House uh, and the Ministry of Defense. Got it. And, you know, I wanted to kind of bring up, uh, you know, something that I've been following very closely is kind of South Korea's own um, defensive precision ballistic missile systems, um, including the Hyunmu uh, 2C system, which was first tested this summer. Um, And then, you know, we also uh, in late August, um, I managed to kind of figure out that South Korea had actually carried out ballistic missile tests just before North Korea carried out a test of three short range ballistic missiles in secret without actually disclosing it. And then they released video footage of that right after the North Korean test. But obviously, if you remember from that first Hyunmu 2C test, we saw kind of this image of, you know, Moon Jae-in kind of eagerly observing this exercise in kind of a military camouflage jacket um, that really seemed to me to kind of be an attempt to project that kind of you know seriousness about South Korean defense to maybe uh, cater to some of those conservative sensibilities in the South Korean electorate that you alluded to any thoughts on that indeed I I agree uh, I mean there was there was a deliberate effort during his campaign to portray his military his military background as a special forces commander someone you will need to check me on specific rank uh, but he, like all men in South Korea, has most men in South Korea have a, a background in the military, and he was of a of a higher um, cut. He wasn't just an ordinary soldier, and they they played to that. Uh, and and Moon has as well. I mean, it's both po- it's both politically savvy and in great theater. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me so ask. There, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask you also about. Um... You know the T word, which we haven't really talked about, uh, Trump, <laughs> and uh, so obviously, you know, one of the things that happened since we last spoke was um, Moon came to Washington, had a a summit with Trump, obviously amid some uneasiness about the future of the U.S. South Korea Free Trade Agreement, which remains in place as of this taping. Um, there was an interesting report in Axios this week about 
Trump suggesting to his advisors that he wanted to be portrayed as a madman to South Korea, uh, which is a little bit of a variation on Nixon's madman play, which was intended towards his adversaries. But here, uh, Trump seemingly sees some value in confusing his allies. Um, And, you know, I mean, like you said, the Moon administration has been keen to make clear that the alliance extended deterrence, the U.S. nuclear umbrella, um, the B-1B flights to to uh, North Korea, which appeared to be getting more frequent and more um, provocative by flying uh, higher than the MDL, potentially scraping North Korea's military boundary zone. Um, what's your sense of how uh, the Moon administration has done in managing the alliance with the United States amid kind of this uneasiness about the free trade agreement and everything else? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that Moon has played it careful. I think he understands uh, the volatility in the demeanor of the U.S. president. And I think he's sought to reassure his own populace that, you know, first and foremost, the United States is, will not go to war without consulting its, you know, chief ally in the matter, that is South Korea. And I think he's attempted to walk this Uh, tightrope between attempting to do something slightly different uh, to break the ice, so to speak, or to perhaps create more favorable conditions for dialogue and a de-escalation of tensions on the the peninsula without offending uh, or otherwise um, creating tension with the United States. You know, he, the Moon administration is arguably different compared to the previous conservative administrations in that it hasn't placed as great a priority on the rock us alliance um, but it still has not ignored it and it has gone out of its way to ensure that it is a priority and that is going to seek to coordinate with the united states uh, with regards to you know issues in the region of great importance so i think he's he's played a He's played it quite well, tactically speaking, mm-hmm. from a, a, a diplomat's perspective, from a diplomatic perspective, rather. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the boat hasn't been rocked too much. I mean, you know, Trump likes the the brawn and bluster of saying spectacular things on Twitter with regards to trade or the course FDA. And I think that Moon and, and those in the Blue House know that, uh, you know, institutions like free trade agreements uh, can't just disappear overnight uh, so as not to respond uh, to them to start um, a war of words I think they've they remained quite tactically quiet and that's worked that's worked pretty well thus far I mean my impression is it hasn't been that there has been very there, that there hasn't been much uh, tension despite an, the anticipation of such between the between Seoul and Washington with what Donald Trump has said with with regards to course FTA or accusing um, the Moon Jae-in administration of pursue, pursuing appeasement, which is demonstrably false. Uh, aside from those few things, there hasn't been a whole lot to get excited about. And I suppose in a way that's good. Yeah, I, I totally agree, actually. Um, and there's, you know, there's a few other good signals. Um, someone like Peter Navarro, who is uh, probably the most vocal critic of the Chorus FTA, has just been 
put under the authority of Gary Cohn, which is, I think, bodes well for the future of that agreement. And also, as you note, the Moon administration hasn't hasn't taken the bait in, uh, you know, doing anything rhetorically to match Trump. I think they recognize um, you know, the game that's being played here and have handled things quite well. Um, the autonomous strike capability stuff that we've seen out of South Korea, which has been ongoing. I mean, you know, the, the kill chain, massive punishment and retaliation, everything that has to do with eventual opcon transfer um, from the United States to South Korea. All of that has still been ongoing under Moon, undisturbed and actually accelerated in some ways. You know, we've seen the increase of the, um, the missile payload limits, um, some recent rumblings about potential nuclear attack submarines, which I think would be ludicrously cost inefficient for South Korea for what they'd be getting. Um, but, you know, I also uh, want to bring up, you know, a topic that I know you've been itching to talk about, Stephen, which is um, a nuclear South Korea. <laughs> um, we've heard rumblings of this from the opposition, um, certainly regarding the redeployment of tactical nuclear weapons to the Korean Peninsula after their departure in the early 1990s under George H.W. Bush, um, but also of the prospect of a potential indigenous South Korean nuclear capability to match their neighbor to the north. Um, what's your What's your perspective on this? Is this going anywhere? Does this make any sense? The fact that it's being discussed makes a lot of sense. Um, again, the, the South Korean populace with regard to security issues leans conservative. Right. Uh, they are you know, they are conscious for good reasons of the vulnerabilities of you know national security and sovereignty, and for some time, if you look at the the longitudinal data on uh, survey data on support for uh, the reintroduce the reintroduction of tactical nuclear weapons or the development of an indigenous one, there's always quite a lot of support uh, among the South Korean populace, and of course that support spikes following. A provocation of some sort especially a nuclear test in north korea and politicians especially those to the right will capitalize to score some relatively easy political points by raising the issue now we all know that sometimes what seems politically impossible becomes possible quite quickly thinking about brexit and the election of donald trump so i don't want to say that this won't happen or that it cannot happen but it's highly unlikely to happen so it's not ludicrous that we're talking about it. It makes quite a lot of sense to me and I'm sure to many others. But there are at least at least two reasons why it won't. People like to compare South Korea to Pakistan or India, who also developed their own nuclear weapons programs, despite opposition from the international community, including the United States. But South Korea is, is different in at least two regards. One, it's a member to the MPT. And if institutions matter at all, uh, internationally or otherwise, then the the process that it would have to go through to to withdraw from the MPT, which North Korea did, I hasten to add, would damage greatly, and thus it would it would be an, a a barrier or a disincentive to doing uh, such. Two, South Korea is perhaps the most vital uh, sp spoke to the American hubs and spoke system. It's uh, its network of bilateral security alliances into East Asia. Thus, as you said earlier, that South Korea is very much under the North Korea nuclear umbrella. There is a credible deterrent against nuclear attack. And there really isn't any need, uh, tactically speaking, to have nuclear weapons on the peninsula in the southern part again. So this is why this is not going to happen. 
if there is another nuclear test, I'm sure it'll get some more airtime. Some people have made an argument for how the liberal administration, the Moon Jae-in uh, administration, could really consolidate its support by pursuing this or popularizing it. Uh, however, Moon has stated quite bluntly that this is not a policy objective of his administration, i.e. nukes aren't coming back. Right. So this is why it's probably not going to happen. Absolutely. And there's just a laundry list of strategic reasons why South Korea just would not benefit um, either in wartime or peacetime from either tactical nuclear weapons on its territory or, or really its own nuclear program. But, you know, I mean, um, I you know, the fact that you began by saying that it makes a lot of sense that this is being debated, um, I completely agree with. I mean, the North Korean ICBM, um, I've been referencing this quite a bit on the podcast lately. Um, just yesterday, I was talking to a Japan analyst about uh, the threat of decoupling as well. Um, that's the big problem um, that I think, you know, South Koreans are concerned about is the credibility of that U.S. nuclear umbrella that has long been taken for granted, the assurance that the United States would leave Los Angeles, New York, Chicago open to retaliation by North Korea um, in exchange for, you know, coming to South Korea's assistance if there is a, uh, a resumption of conflict on the Korean Peninsula. And, and those doubts um, under the Trump administration and its America first um, casting of, you know, longstanding U.S. commitments um, does leave allies uneasy. So I think the alliance reassurance task is considerably more difficult now than it was, you know, in 2014, 2015, certainly in 2010 when we saw the sinking of the Chonan and the shelling of uh, Yongpyong Island. Um, certainly we're in a different place. And if North Korea decided to escalate conventionally, um, I think, you know, that would also be a uh, an important event in this debate going on in South Korea. Um, all right. So I wanted to, you know, wrap things up and just give you a shot to kind of give us some closing thoughts, anything to look forward to in either where the Moon Jae-in administration is going um, or in terms of the U.S.-South Korea lines. Any closing thoughts for us? I think going forward, we pay attention to the relationship between security concerns and uh, Moon Jae-in's approval and his ability to get things done. If you look at the latest uh, Korea Gallup poll, you'll see that Moon Jae-in's popularity is sitting at about, the approval rating rather, is sitting at 65%, which is good, but it's significantly lower than the the, the plus aioid when he first came into, into office. And if you look at the breakdown of some of the follow-up questions that were asked, you'll find that among those who negatively assessed the Moon administration, 38% cited security concerns or the North nuclear issue. Now it's worth remembering most people aren't concerned about the security issue. They're concerned with day-to-day -day, uh, issues, uh, how they're doing financially today and how they're going to do financially five years from now. However, given current events, the security issue is a bit more salient than it typically is. And this is going to happen a this is going to affect the Moon administration so that at least internationally, Moon's legacy will be determined how he deals with the, the security issue and the, the perceived by North Korea's uh, nuclear weapons program. All right. Well, Stephen, thanks again for coming back on the show. It's always a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.
Great. And uh, for our listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. We really take this discussion all over Asia, discussing geopolitical, domestic political issues as they come up. And if you haven't subscribed, um, if you have subscribed, do leave us a review if you haven't already done so on iTunes. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks a lot for listening, and I'll be back next week with more.